namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambodasa Buddham Dhammam Sangam Namasami Many of us are experiencing the weather of winter. In general, All of us have weather. Each of us has our own weather, our own weather system. By that I mean the weather of the mind. What is the weather of your mind? This is something that we have to practice being aware of. Aware of the weather. And the only channel that we can find that on is the channel within us. Do we pay attention? Do we look? Do we listen? Do we realize what the weather is? Or do we just react to it? Do we run or do we attach? Do we like or dislike? Do we criticize or express gratitude? Do we enjoy or wish we had something else? How many times do we do these kinds of revolutions going upside down and right side up, inside out and outside in because of the weather in the mind? Are we always longing for the weather in the mind to be different? Surely we have all, through our meditation practice, noticed that it's possible to turn the volume down on the weather in the mind and experience some peace when we confront it. When we experience it directly and learn how to calm ourselves regardless of what the weather in the mind is up to. Whichever way it is, we find the ability to be peaceful with it. And this is a very important skill to develop. It's a very simple skill in itself, but when the weather is not according to what we like, it's quite difficult for us to remember to apply this particular skill. I think that's 
maybe the whole secret of the practice is to remember the instructions when we're suffering. Anybody else experience that? Anyone? I see a few hands. <laughs> a few people nodding. I don't mean falling asleep. I mean saying yes. We all go through this. If we could only remember the instructions. So what are the instructions? The instructions are to stay in the middle. This is called the middle way, isn't it? The middle way means being in the middle. But the middle way cannot be practiced just by calling it the middle way and then sitting with our own experience and getting caught in the extremes of it. Because as soon as we're caught, we're not in the middle. And that moment of getting caught is quintessential to having the wherewithal, which means having a bit of perspective, a bit of objectivity regarding consciousness and that which consciousness is aware of. This is a fundamental distinction and if we can remember to distinguish in that way when we're suffering, we have actually solved the greatest riddle of our lives, which is to see life as if we are in a theater, watching a play, the play of our life. And it doesn't make it trivial but it just gives us a vantage point. It's like lifting the mind up into the height of a mountain and imagining that your life is in the valley and there you are sitting on the mountain for a moment, seeing your life from a distance or seeing your life without the you in it. And the reason this is important, because unless we can trick ourselves into doing that, we are time and again caught up in believing that this life belongs to us, that this is somehow ours, and that there is an owner, and that there is something to be owned that even the feelings of anger or pleasure, the weather, whatever it is, belongs to a person. And we're identified with that person so intimately. And in that identification is very strongly bound up a body, which this consciousness happens to be a passenger in traveling within but instead of seeing it in that way we call it mine and we call it me this is who i am who is this i one of the very 
distinguishing features and probably the most liberating aspect of this path and the Buddha's entire dispensation is the understanding that there is no solid being that we can call me or I, myself, this body, mind, process. But we believe that it exists. And therein is the source of our dukkha and our inability to ride the wave of life as if we were really on the crest of a wave rather than in it. Owning it, belonging to it, being it as an I person. Consciousness and the body are bound together temporarily with an insight into the impermanence of what we think we are, of this body and mind, of these processes. This impermanence has to be understood for us to really know what we are or what we're not. So for this to happen, we must study the weather in the mind. We must study it deeply and know it as suffering, especially if we don't like it. It's impermanence. It's suffering nature because it's so changeable and so uncontrollable, and that it is just empty phenomena arising and ceasing in consciousness. So why are we so upset by this transitoriness, by things that cannot be held or owned or controlled? Why are we so driven and compelled by them? We must ask ourselves these questions. And if we do, and if we watch the weather without owning it, from that perspective, empirically, not as if they belong to us, but just like a snowstorm or a sunset, arising and ceasing, not me, not mine, not who I am. If we were more able to do that, then we would understand, at least begin to understand the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha's teaching. We would understand consciousness and the objects in consciousness as separate. And we could practice being aware of all that arises in consciousness as phenomena for us to know deeply, to be familiar with, not with a sense of possession, but just as transitory, impermanent, 
conditioned by what preceded them. Like a chain of causation, cause and effect. The wind blows and the snow comes in. The wind stops, the precipitation ends. All these causes and conditions for weather systems. So if we act well, we have certain results. And if the mind is wild and out of control, there are other results. And we can know this. We can understand these as process, not as me and mine. But it's very important for us to take responsibility for the condition of the mind and to notice that we can actually bring about good results. Even if the weather in the mind is not good, we can bring peace to that condition. We can beautify the mind through our understanding of it. Whether it's good or bad, happy or unhappy, we're getting what we want or we're not, people like us or they don't, whatever is arising in life, we can receive that with a measure of balance and equanimity if we can grow wise about consciousness, the nature of consciousness, and the objects that arise and cease in consciousness. This is what we're doing in our meditation practice. If this is not what you're doing in your meditation practice, then this has to be realigned. The instructions have to be reviewed again. Sometimes people practice for years and think they have practiced and have not really understood how to be with the mind in this way, in an investigative way, an introspective way. Introspective in the sense of seeing what is really there. Seeing it for what it is rather than for what we believe it is. And so we may be, quote unquote, meditating, but actually we are not in the middle. We're holding what we like and we're getting rid of what we don't like. And our likes and dislikes may be very biased, but not biased according to virtue, but just according to perception and preference. So we may not develop any wisdom at all. So everything that comes into the mind, whatever it is, if we're studying it, if we're understanding it, if we're seeing it, the way the Buddha intended for us to see it and instructed us to see, 
all these phenomena can be for us teachers, everyone, teaching us how to overcome the difficult weather, the suffering, how to deliver ourselves from it, how to temporarily deliver ourselves from it, but in the end, how to free ourselves from it permanently. That's the project. When I was a young nun, I used to go out with my alms bowl and stand or walk in the village or a town and beg for my food. I didn't often get very much. In those days, well, actually, if I did that around here, I probably wouldn't get very much either. But back then, Buddhism wasn't well known. And walking around with a bald head in sheets was not very acceptable. So I didn't get rebuked very often, but I would certainly feel hostile looks, oftentimes a, a word or a reaction that wasn't pleasant. But nevertheless, I continued to do it. And when nothing came in the bowl, sometimes I would feel a little disappointed. And luckily, I didn't starve because sometimes I had the remains of my breakfast. I usually got something in the morning. But I remember standing with my bowl and getting nothing and being very uncomfortable because of the weather. And I was studying the bowl and seeing that the bowl was empty. And I had this insight that, isn't this what I want the mind to be? Empty? Don't I want the mind to be free of objects? Pure, empty of thought, full of light, empty of any sense of I, just completely with the present moment. So I used that emptiness instead of being disappointed and thinking something was wrong. No, empty that mind and just observe the pure consciousness, knowing the emptiness, and that actually all conditioned phenomena are empty. They have the nature to arise and cease. And I saw that my whole life is like an alms bowl. It's actually full and empty at the same time. It's full of emptiness. It was such a liberating moment. I had no attachment to getting anything. I just felt so much gratitude for the opportunity to stand with this alms bowl and be a representative of the Buddha's teachings. There I was in New Zealand, the body with the bowl out in the cold, standing for the truth. 
and being so content with the empty bowl. If we're able to stand in the present moment in the face of whatever disappointment there might be and contemplate the true meaning of our life, that disappointment can evaporate. And in its place, the heart can be so filled with gratitude that there is a present moment and that we can be conscious of it. Because what are we here for in this world, in this life, but to be the witness of the breath for a moment, and then to let it go and let ourselves go into whatever there is that is meant to arise for us, depending on our karmic predicament, whatever that might be. There is no controller in there. This is a figment of our own imagination or our ignorant perception of who we are and what we are because we haven't seen properly yet. So we are here to learn to see. And when we learn to see, our ignorance will fall away. But as long as we don't see, we so believe our ignorance that we suffer a lot because of it. And we will defend our ignorance to the point of arguing unreasonably with anyone based on our opinion. But our opinions change from year to year, from decade to decade. And when we're old and we're, when we're dying, what good will all those opinions be for us? And we will still not have learned the truth of this journey. So therefore, we should hasten to see properly before we latch on to opinions about anything. Because they're vacuous and empty. They do not nourish a true happiness in us. They are not a source of real nourishment for us. They are just like a hole in the heart that takes away our lifeblood secretly without our knowing it. And we waste our breath in useless choruses and diatribes that lead nowhere, that only take us back into the world and all its flurry and frenetic hurry. Nowhere. Nowhere. When actually we have the possibility to free ourselves from these worldly constraints and weathers. And whatever storms of life come and go, we can pass through them valiantly, bravely, because we stand for truth, which is taller and mightier 
than any of this play of earth, air, fire, and water. <laughs>